But I want to start out this morning with a statement that I hope makes sense to you, but we usually don't think about it in this way. And that is that mission exists because worship does not. Mission exists because worship does not. In other words, the purpose of evangelistic mission that we see in the church is so that more and more people will become worshipers of the living God. Evangelism won't last into eternity, guys, but worship will. Preaching won't last forever. The love of God will. And in this sense, we might say that the Great Commission is time-bound. It has an expiration date, but the great commandment is eternal. It'll never end. So if you think about it, the Great Commission really exists to serve the Great Commandment. The Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, this missionary call exists so that more and more souls, more and more people would obey the Great Commandment to love the Lord with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. Do you hear that? So God is seeking out, searching out, reaching out for more lovers of God, like a bridegroom in search of his beloved. As Jesus himself told the woman at the well in John 4, woman, believe me, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking for worshipers, guys. The one true God and Father of all is seeking for true worshipers. That's what the mission of the church is all about. Mission exists because worship does not. When my wife Carissa and I were in college, we had a friend named Phil, who we really loved, and uh, we both invested a lot of evangelistic energy into this relationship. Phil was an intellectual. He was agnostic. So we did our best to answer his skeptical questions. And Phil was skeptical, skeptical about scripture. So we would open the Bible with him and explore it with him and help him to see what the Bible's really about. And especially the luminous person of Jesus that comes through in the gospels. And I remember one night Phil came to a worship gathering that our campus ministry was hosting. And it wasn't uncommon to see that Phil there by this point because he was curious at this point. He was actively seeking. But he usually would just sort of stand there silently and awkwardly um, when, uh, when worship was going on because he, he wanted to be respectful, but he didn't want to be inauthentic. But that night, while the music was going on, Phil pulled me and, and my friend David aside and asked if we could talk. And several people in the room saw us kind of leaving off to the side, and they were like, I wonder what's going on over there. And I could tell they were praying for us. And um, when we got to a quiet spot, Phil's countenance was really serious. And he said he wanted to believe in Christ, and he, he needed to know what the next step was. And so we shared the gospel again with him, and we prayed with him, and then a few minutes later, we rejoined the room. But then something happened that we didn't quite think about or sort of factor into the equation of this really exciting moment of evangelism. Because when we rejoined the room and got back to our seats, we noticed something had changed for Phil, and he was now worshiping. 
He was now singing to the Lord in a way that I'd never seen him do before. He had a totally new posture about what was going on. And when Carissa and our other friends in the room saw that, saw this skeptical guy who never used to join in and worship, singing to the Lord from his heart, taking his first sort of awkward baby steps as a new worshiper, it kind of just set the whole gathering on fire with praise and thanksgiving. And we just experienced the Lord in a new and deeper way all together. This is really the goal of mission, guys, to draw new worshipers. Now, to someone on the outside, and perhaps even for some uh, confused believers, this eager desire for God to seek more worshipers might sound like egotistical. It might prompt questions like, well, why does God seem so preoccupied with his own glory? Why does he seem so jealous for the love of people? Is God some kind of megalomaniac? And these are important questions that we need to be prepared to answer. And what we need to point out when these kinds of questions arise, albeit gently and lovingly, is that behind that question is an error in category. Behind that question is a misunderstanding of which places, uh, excuse me, is a misunderstanding which places God on the same plane as human beings. Because, of course, it would be wrong for any human being to jealously desire the glory and adulation of others. Such a desire could only come from a bent and unhealthy place. Because created things were not made to worship created things. Amen? But the worship of God is categorically different. Far from being inappropriate, when we glorify God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength... That is, to, that is to say, when we bring these worship, when we bring our worship to God, we're doing what we were created to do. We were created to worship, created to be drawn up into the eternal love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And unlike any human-to-human -human glorification, there's nothing inappropriate or unhealthy about that. Far from it. Creation is out of order when creatures worship creatures. But it's set back in right order when creation worships its creator. There is in God what some theologians refer to as a non-competitive transcendence. That is to say that the place of Almighty God, the great I am, the place God occupies is utterly unique. Standing outside of the cosmos. God is free of all need and free of all rivals. As St. Thomas Aquinas would say, God is not simply one being among many, but is instead the self-explaining source of existence as such. The great font of being in and through which all finite things subsist and act. He's categorically different than us. And so the love of God, the worship of God in spirit and in truth is the fuel we were meant to burn and the song we were meant to sing. We are never more fully human, fully alive, fully ourselves as we are when we're glorifying God. The Westminster Catechism famously put the matter in a question and answer format. It asks, what is the chief end of man or the chief purpose of all human beings? And it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So to circle back to the words of Jesus to the woman at the well, the reason why the father is seeking more worshipers is not simply because 
He's blessed by our sincere love, although astonishingly, that seems to be true in Scripture, that God is actually truly blessed and affected by our love. This amazing transcendent being is affected by our love. But we also must remember that unlike human lovers, God doesn't need anything from us. God is free of all need, and thus the Father is seeking more worshipers out of his great love for us and for our sakes, guys. Because as John Piper puts it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we want people to know the satisfaction that can only be, f- be found in Christ. This is the impetus behind the mission of the church. We want this for our family members, right? We want this for our friends and loved ones, but we also want it for total strangers. For the places where Christ has not been named, as Paul puts it in Romans 15. I ask you, beloved, have you ever had an overwhelming sense of God's glory? Have you ever thanked him, truly thanked him, praised him, adored him from the heart? Have you ever had the Father's love overwhelm you or been filled with a healthy sense of fear in his presence or been baffled and speechless by the great mystery of God? That's what God wants for all the peoples of the earth. Mission exists because worship does not. And this is a theme that really comes through in our passage today from Romans 15. Will you turn there with me to page 949? This is probably one of the least well-known parts of the book of Romans. But at the same time, we affirm that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. In fact, it's often when we engage the more neglected parts of Scripture that we have the opportunity to learn something new. And so this morning, I want to highlight three points that Romans 15 makes on the topic of worship. Number one, worship is the goal of our unity. Number two, worship is the goal of mission. And number three, worship is the goal of the gospel. So looking down with me at verse 5, let's begin with point 1, that worship is the goal of our unity. Verses 5 and 6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement, we just heard this in the children's sermon, grant you to live in, in such harmony with each other, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, together, meaning both Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the theme that the Apostle Paul has been addressing throughout Romans 14 and here at the beginning of 15 is is harmony, the goal of Christian unity, that together we may with one voice glorify God. In other words, the goal of unity is worship. Now, when we talk about Christian unity, we're talking about something that's very multifaceted. So it's, it's unity across ethnic lines, whether Jew or Gentile or barbarian. It's unity across geographical lines, whether in Jerusalem, Rome, or Spain, as Paul talks about at the end of, First Corinthians, at the end of Romans 15. Our unity in the one body of Christ, our identification with Christians around the, glo- the globe, should actually run deeper for us than any sense of national identity. We're a part of the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And finally, 
The New Testament calls for unity across temporal lines, across time. It's a unity that connects us with saints down through history. The great cloud of witnesses that, that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 with the saints that have already been gathered before the throne that we, that we read about in the book of Revelation who are praying for us and awaiting the consummation of the kingdom, awaiting the second coming of Christ. We who are still here on earth have been called the church militant and they the church victorious. But in reality, still in reality, there's only one church. There's only one body. There's only one bride. And we are one in Christ with the saints that have gone before us. That's why our liturgy at Holy Communion every week says, Therefore, with angels and archangels and faithful ancestors and all in heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name. We're gathering, as we gather around the table, we remember we're joining the everlasting song with that sacred throng that we just sang about in our processional. We're joining the worship of heaven, the one church worshiping together our one savior. So Christianity cuts across ethnic lines, geographical lines, temporal lines. And once again, we see that worship is the goal of our unity. All right, point number two, worship is the goal of mission. We've already touched on this theme, but I want us to see how very present it is in the text of Romans 15. Verses 8 and 9 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is a servant to the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And let's not miss this part. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So what's going on in these verses is that Paul is reminding the Romans of God's original missional purposes for Israel. In the book of Genesis, we learn that the creator God chose Israel, chose the patriarchs, not just to bless them, although that's true, but that they might be a blessing to all nations and all people. God blessed the Jews in order to be a blessing, and Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that, the ultimate confirmation, verse 8, of the promises given to the patriarchs. Because through Christ, through Christ, he, the Jewish Messiah that he, that he was and is, God has welcomed, verse 7, all the peoples of the world back into relationship with himself, welcomed, welcomed humanity back into relationship with himself, so that, what's the goal? They might glorify God for his mercy. So here we clearly see that worship is the goal of mission. And after these Gentiles are brought back into relationship with God, look at what they do. Look at all the synonyms for worship. We find just rapid fire in verses 9 through 11. We find words like praise and sing, verse 9. Rejoice, verse 10. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. Another great synonym for worship. Let all the peoples extol him, verse 11. Here, Paul gives a quotation from the law, the prophets, and the writings, all three sections of the Old Testament, to prove unequivocally to his readers that it was always God's plan to bless all nations, to draw all nations to him so that all nations might worship him. In a recent article about C.S. Lewis, Zach Kincaid quotes Lewis saying, God does, does not only demand praise, as the supremely beautiful and all-satisfying object, Lewis says he does apparently 
command it as a lawgiver, but in the command is a sensitivity to our need. There's nothing insufficient in God that he needs our worship. Rather, he wants it. The command is an invitation. This is the missional purpose of God. The great commission serves the great commandment. So we've seen that worship is the goal of our unity. Number two, worship is the goal of mission. And finally, number three, worship is the goal of the gospel. So look with me at the way that Paul describes his ministry in verse 16. He says that God has graciously appointed him to be, quote, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Isn't that an interesting phrase? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is using Old Testament imagery, Levitical imagery for the priesthood as an analogy for his gospel ministry. But the difference is, instead of offering the blood of bulls and goats and rams, here his offering to God is the living sacrifice of Gentile converts. In essence, Paul is offering new worshipers to God. God, this is my worship to you, that, that this new heart worships you. This is my worship to you, that this, this disordered heart that didn't know what worship was, now, now it's set back right. This is what the priestly service of the gospel of God is all about. This is what new covenant ministry is all about. Worship is the goal of the gospel. And Paul understands his unique apostolic call through this, this lens. As best we can gather um, from the New Testament, Paul's strategy was to go around planting new churches in every major city of the Roman Empire and then allowing those new churches to sort of evangelize the smaller towns and cities in that area. That's why even though there are still plenty of people to be reached, Paul can say in verse 19, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That is to say, he has completed his God-ordained task of planting churches in every major city in the Eastern Roman Empire. And so now he's like, I can, kind of, I can finally come and visit you Romans. He writes in verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition. And this is quite a positive spin on the word ambition, right? If only the church today was known for this kind of ambition. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And then Paul quotes from the famous prophetic text of Isaiah 52 and 53, showing that this is the lens through which he's understanding his missionary efforts. Verse 21, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him, those who have never been told of Jesus, will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The text goes on to talk about the blood of Jesus sprinkling many nations, which again is priestly imagery, sanctifying imagery. And as much as modern day Christians in our error want to distance ourselves from all this Old Testament Im imagery, I think this imagery is actually very appropriate. Have you ever had the privilege of leading someone to Christ for the first time? I mean, it's a very priestly thing. It's a very priestly moment. When somebody gets that point, they're ready to trust in Jesus, confess their sins, enter a relationship with God, and they look to you as this connection point with them and the true mediator, Jesus Christ. 
and you get that sense that there's ready and they're ready and there's something going on in their hearts and souls between them and God and the heavenlies. And they look to you and are like, what, what am I supposed to do next? What do I do? Right? And in that moment, you come alongside them. You fill a gap. You show them how to be connected with the saving God. What a privilege to lead new worshipers in their first steps of prayer and trust in Christ. What a joy to present them to the church for baptism. And friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a baptized disciple of Jesus, I want you all to know that joy in this life. This is what it means to be a part of the priesthood of all believers that the reformers talked about. That phrase, which is taken from Exodus 19.6 and from 1 Peter 2, didn't mean originally that all the people of the old covenant were actually Levitical priests. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean in the new covenant that all the people are pastors and bishops. What it means is that we've all been given the power and the privilege and the authority to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to saving faith in the living God. It means the Father, just as the Father has sent him, so he's sending us. It means that the Great Commission is the job of the whole church and the individual members of it. Because as Jesus said, the Father is seeking for such people to worship him. He's seeking them out through you guys, the hands and feet of Christ. I remember when I was a campus minister at a summer discipleship camp, and one of, after one of the evening sessions, I saw this, this deep and resolute look in the eyes of one of the FSU students, and I asked him what was up, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, man, I've been a Christian my whole life, but I don't think that I have ever really owned the Great Commission." I've never really owned the Great Commission as somehow applying to me. And that look on his face was him beginning to realize the weight and the privilege and the authority given to him in his priestly call in this life. And what about you guys? Have you ever owned the Great Commission in a personal way? In a way that affects how you use your time and and where you live, and how you study. Will you take up this priestly call that is given you by virtue of your baptism? Last summer, we hosted an evangelism training school on Zoom. In my sense, that it was really helpful for a lot of people in their growth in evangelism. But really, often when it comes to evangelism, I think we focus maybe too much on method or mechanics or what we do or don't know or how comfortable we are. And those questions are actually secondary to the call itself. Have you said yes to be a great commission priest? This is the priestly call of the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is our marching orders from the Lord Jesus himself. And once we've said yes to that, all the other questions and issues will get sorted out along the way. The real education for a soldier comes in the trenches, not in basic training. And it's the same in evangelism. We need the faith and the courage to join the fray. And the Lord Jesus will say, I will be with you always to the end of the age. But as we walk this out, we, we need to remember, it's never just mission for mission's sake. To put another notch on our belt. To put another scratch into our bedpost. Mission exists because worship does not. Mission exists 
so that all of creation can get back into relationship, back into connection, back wrapped into the love of God that he longs for all his people. We remember that the Great Commission really exists to serve the Great Commandment. We remember that the Father is seeking for worshipers, that worship is a part of our ultimate flourishing as creatures, and that the goal of mission is worship in spirit and in truth. Amen.